I've been trying to imagine what a, what a contemporary equivalent to Jesus throwing the money changers and the dove sellers out of the temple might look like. It's actually kind of a scary thing to contemplate when you um, look at a, at a gigantic cathedral. John, the gospel writer, paints a, a pretty vivid picture of this scene, right? There's these stalls with animals who are lined up to be sold for sacrifice. There's tables overflowing with coinage. This, is, this part of the temple, the outer courtyard, would probably have been a pretty chaotic place, right? Especially during the great festivals of the Passover when contemporary scholars estimate there might have been like 400,000, 500,000 people descending upon Jerusalem from all over the known world, right? And everybody is, everybody's required to pay a temple tax. That's why there's money changers there, right? It's one half shekel for every Jewish man over 20. So the money changers actually serve a pretty important purpose. They are necessary for keeping the system functioning, right? There's, no, there's really no way to get a, a count around this, but my, my guess is that like hundreds and maybe thousands of people in Jerusalem depended on that temple system for their livelihood. That's where their paycheck comes from. The temple is like the undergirding of, of a pretty significant part of the Jerusalem economy. It's big business. And it worked pretty well, right? Before we start asking why is Jesus attacking this thing, I think it's really important for us to think about how central it was to this whole world that he was a part of. And then he gets mad, right? That's usually the way we tell this. Jesus gets angry at a, a den of robbers he, who he accuses of having turned his father's house into a marketplace, literally an emporium, right? That's the word he uses, a place where goods are bought and sold. Interestingly, anger is not the word that John uses in connection with Jesus in this scene. It's the word um, that we often associate with. But the word that his disciples associate with Jesus is not anger, right? It's a word that, um, that gets attached to their memories of this moment. It's a word that they lift from their tradition, from the, from the Psalms that they learned as children. And the word that they associate with, with Jesus is not anger, but zeal, right? Zeal is what they see in him. And they, and they quote the psalm, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a line that the, comes from the psalm. The psalmist probably wrote it as a hymn, probably for use in the temple for worship several hundred years before Jesus came along. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what the, that's what the psalmist says. And when it was originally written, we assume zeal for your house has consumed me was like a, that was a positive thing, right? I'm so into God, I'm so obsessed and single-minded about God's glory and God's majesty or whatever that like, you know, the only thing I want to do is hang out in the temple. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The disciples apply it to Jesus in a, in a very different way, right? Zeal for the things of God literally consumes Jesus, right? Zeal for the things of God is what gets him killed. Zeal is a complicated thing. Zealotry is a complicated thing. I, th I think that's not a word that we tend to use with positive connotations in our culture, right? Zealots are the crazy ones. They're overrun with religious conviction. They're the people who form mobs and incite rebellion, the kind of people who stoke conspiracy theories and attempt government coups. I mean, I'll be honest, this, this story about Jesus's supposedly righteous anger, the ruckus he causes this day in Jerusalem, it reads a little bit differently to me on the other side of January 6th of this year and all of the ongoing threats that contemporary Christian nationalists pose for our national life. This is, this is the story that those who take up arms in the name of Christ use for their imprimatur, right? That was, that's true now, and that's been true for just about every Christian group who has claimed divine permission 
for their violence over the centuries. That's the story. This is the story that people of faith have tended to look to when they pick up arms and are consumed with a righteous anger, an anger that burns red hot and seems to consume everything it touches. Zeal for your house has, has eaten people up, right? Zeal for something has consumed a lot of people over the centuries. So I want to be really clear, right? This, this story about Jesus overturning the temples and herding the money changers out of the courtyard with this whip of cords, you tell me what that is, I think this story is, is misused. I think it's misread when it is understood as permission to enact violence on somebody else in the name of God. I do not believe that Jesus is demonstrating holy anger, at least not in the way that John tells the story, where the word anger does not appear, right? In John, this stunt that Jesus stages is almost like, per, it's like performance theater, right? It's like street theater. It's a kind of protest. And John places it right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, I think in order to establish a couple of things, like right off the bat, right? This garners Jesus a lot of attention. He is, he's nobody when he walks into the temple, and he walks out with all of the eyes of the world on him. He is a guy to watch. And it also establishes Jesus' Jesus's relationship with his home religion, with his native religion, which is both a, a contentious and a reverent relationship at the same time. The temple actually represents something incredibly important to Jesus. I mean, sometimes I think Christian commentators tend to kind of dismiss this story, you know, oh, well, the temple was pretty corrupt, and that's probably what Jesus is talking about. Um, but Jesus actually, you know, has, oh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of beautiful stories about Jesus' relationship with the temple, right? That, this is the place that he loves. This is his father's house, the place that his, his parents found him in when he was 12 years old. Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Jesus loves the temple maybe more than any other place in his world. As a faithful Jew, he would have gone several times a year to worship there. All of the New Testament Gospels record frequent visits to the temple by Jesus and by his family. They, they probably would have paid their temple tax. They would have relied on those money changers and their tables to do that. We hear in, in Luke's Gospel about Mary and Joseph sacrificing those very doves that he throws out of the temple, right? Those are the doves that Mary and Joseph go to the temple to sacrifice when Jesus is born because Mary and Joseph are so poor. And the doves are the option that are given to the destitute. The doves are kind of like, I mean, if we're gonna not to put too fine a point on it, but those are like the food bags of the ancient world, right? They are the means by which the poorest of the poor are included in the temple system. The, the doves are kind of about like some attempt at equality. So Jesus's family knows this system. They've participated in this system. And I suspect that that means that the people that Jesus is throwing out of the temple are not like these anonymous bad guys that are twirling their mustaches, right? These are people he knows. He knows those dove changers. He's probably grown up. He knows their first names. He knows their family stories. He's probably met the people that depend on them for their livelihood. These are his, these are his friends. These are people Jesus loves. So there's not a simple answer to the question of what it is about this temple infrastructure that so inspires Jesus, enrages Jesus, if you like, to enact this cleansing ritual. Some people look at the economic system that undergirds the temple and wonder about the ways in which it may have, you know, taken advantage of or had been seen to take advantage of the poorest and the most needy, the ones whom scripture, Hebrew scripture enjoins over and over again, right? The people of God must defend those people. 
So those commentators, kind of looking at the temple as an economic system of, of exploitation, if you like, would then turn the gaze onto us, onto the contemporary church, and ask us, you know, in what ways is the church complicit in economic systems and, and traditions that either tacitly or actively work to maintain a distinction between the people with the wealth and the power on the one hand and the people with little wealth and power on the other hand? That's an uncomfortable question for us to deal with, especially we at Trinity who do so much good work in, in the, kind of sort of in the direction of charity, right? I sometimes wonder, like, what would Jesus say if he walked into our courtyard at 11 a.m. on a Monday morning and saw this line of people who live outside waiting to get a food bag from us? Would he commend us for our charity? Maybe. I hope so. What would it look like if he walked into Kempton Hall and overturned tables that are set up with, with enough calories to get somebody through a day? What if he said something like, stop making my father's house complicit in an economic system that depends on maintaining a class of people who depend on you for charity? Whose interests are we serving, he might ask us. That's an uncomfortable question. It is not a question that has an easy answer. Other commentators look at what Jesus has to say elsewhere in the Gospels about the, the dangers of a kind of false religious piety, a kind of performative religious show, outwardly observant but inwardly corrupt. Stop making my father's house a marketplace might mean something like, you know, this is not a place for you to demonstrate your piety and then go home and do whatever you want, right? That would be a line that would, that would ally Jesus with the, the great prophets of his tradition. It was Amos, 500 years before Jesus lived, who said, I hate your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me, Amos says, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters, and let righteousness come like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, according to this critique, right, if all we're going to do is gather in a building and sing hymns and kneel to pray and go away feeling satisfied, we are missing the boat. We're missing something really wonderful. At that level, and this is a weird thing to think about as we like, you know, and I'm so excited to like start bringing people back to church after a year of enforced absence, it feels great. It feels wonderful to stand up here and see people in the pew. And then I read this story and I think, by Jesus' critique, church is not supposed to make us feel good. It's supposed to unsettle us in the first instance, to raise some uncomfortable questions that gnaw at my soul and will not be silenced until I am ready to do something about that gnawing. Shanna McCauley, our, our canon pastor, and I went to a Zoom conference this week. One of the speakers was Dr. Catherine Meeks, who directs the Absalom Jones Center for Justice in Atlanta. Um, and she and the presiding bishop were talking about, you know, how do you, you, know, how do you motivate people for action? How, do, how does the church get motivated to take action? And Catherine Meeks was kind of, you know, she was in high dudgeon. She was preaching. And at one point she said, you know, if you want to feel good on a Sunday morning, you should go to a spa. And she wasn't kidding. She, she wasn't dismissing spas, right? She's like, I love spas, right? Like, I go to spas, I get my, you know, I get my plaster done or whatever, right? You get hot stones, I get to relax, other people take care of me, my every need is catered to, and I leave feeling relaxed and restored and wonderful. And that is not what church is about, she said. If you want to do that, go to a spa, and if you want to be unsettled, come to church. It hit me kind of hard 
um, because I, lo I love this place, um, and I love the way I feel when I'm here. I'm, I'm guessing that most of you who are here in the pews who have like, you know, gone through the rigmarole of signing up for the spot and getting your temperature taken and signing the, you know, the release form and sitting and you know, pulling up your leaflet on your phone, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a work to get to church. We are here because we love this place. And certainly there are times in our lives when we just need to restore ourselves. Sometimes, often, I think that does happen in church. That's a vocation we play. But that's not the only thing we're here for. And in the prophetic tradition, the house of God is not meant to be a place where you relax. It's meant to be a place that unsettles you and gets you out of your seat and out there in that world to do something. At a certain level, I think that's actually what we I think that's what we long for, right? I show up at some level because I'm longing for a truer and, and deeper religion. I want to be reminded of the great through line of this tradition in which I was born and raised, that God's kingdom operates in a very different way from every political, religious, or economic system built by human beings. And every Sunday, we have this opportunity to step, if only for an instant, into this different kind of world. It's a world where there is you know, there's enough bread to go around, right? Everybody gets an equal share, no more, no less. That's what heaven looks like, according to Jesus. No distinctions, right? No distinctions between the people that can afford to sacrifice 80 cattle and those who can barely afford a couple doves. No distinctions, not at God's altar. Stop making my house a marketplace, he says. Stop making my house a place where you police the distinctions, economic or otherwise, that divvy you up out there in the world. My Father's house is meant to give you a taste of what heaven looks like. And there is no buying or selling in heaven. In God's kingdom, everything is a gift. So at the heart of the story, at least as I am hearing it this morning, with all of these you know, incumbent dangers around the dangers of zeal, the slippery slope of righteous anger, all of the modern-day instances surrounding us where individuals and groups have taken this story as permission to storm the gates and take up arms and put other people's lives in danger through violent confrontation. At the heart of the story, maybe, is a reminder that religion, when it is properly understood, is actually a pretty simple thing. Paul says it well, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Foolishness and weakness, that's what church is for. That's what we come together to remember, right? That we are foolish people, and we are weak people, right? And when we try to distance ourselves from that reality and dress ourselves up as fancy, competent people who have answers and know stuff, we miss the boat. I think that's the real reason we come to church, right? Which we can finally do after so many months of waiting. I was actually, I was thinking about this as I was walking over this morning, getting ready for the, the eight o'clock service, right? Which is happening again after a year's worth of absence. And we used to do it in the chapel. There would be about 50 people in there. And it felt like, you know, 50 people always felt to me like, oh, this is like our most intimate gathering, right? It's this small little dress rehearsal that we do. Um, and now, of course, 50 people would feel like, you know, a, a horde. It would feel like the 40,000 people that are coming to Jerusalem for the temple. Um, there were eight people at eight o'clock this morning. And so I was thinking, like, what does it mean to do, and we were here in the, in the cathedral, right? Eight people in this cavernous space. And it was actually perfect somehow, because those eight people, we just stood there, we gathered around that altar, we broke bread, we said these ancient archaic prayers. 
And maybe that's actually what church is meant to be when we get right down to it. Bodies in a space. Maybe just a few people in a gigantic cathedral because that's all we can do right now. But somehow that matters. And it matters not just because we feel good doing it. It matters at a, at a deeper level, I think, because it feels a little bit foolish. It feels a little bit weak. We're rebuilding something. It's going to take us a long time to get back to a thousand people and a huge liturgy with all the pomp and circumstance. Like, we're just not there yet. It's going to take us a long time to get there. We might never actually get back to everything that filled this space before pandemic. We have been cleared out. I think about Jesus walking to the temple courtyard, 400,000 people, he gets them all gone. And then what happens when they start creeping their way back the next day? right? Probably what happens is they set up their tables again, and they start doing the money changing, and they start selling the doves, right? Like they, the, the system continues. That's probably what will happen here too. But he gives them this moment where he gets rid of everything. Everything comes to a crashing halt, and he asks them to think, what are you really about? What are you really doing here? Find your answer, find your location, find your embodied, you know, response to that question. And then we start building something again. Bodies and spaces, right? Just being in proximity to one another, hearing, overhearing other people saying their responses, whether you're bored, whether you're sleepy, whether you're grumpy, you're exhausted, you know, we, we go through the motions. Other times we're moved to tears by how beautiful it is to just be together. It brings us a little bit closer to one another. I think that's holy. I think that's how we get closer to God, actually. Because this is God's temple, right? Not fancy doves, not elaborate pageantry required. It's foolishness, it's weakness, it's silliness. It's kind of dumb. And here we are, right? Here we are. God's little temple on the corner of 19th and Everett, downtown Portland. We are still here. And God is here. The Holy One is in our midst.